You're listening to the Macro Trading Floor. This episode is brought to you by Saxo Bank. Hey everybody, welcome back on the Macro Trading Floor. This is Alf speaking and today my buddy Andreas will not be with me. He's on a honeymoon. Can you actually blame him? I think he's having more fun than me. But for the time being, let's do a quick intro for the episode of the day. Really excited about the guest we're going to be having. He has a wealth of knowledge. He has traded in uh, fast money, real money institutions, a very experienced investor. But we are setting up the stage for the interview, looking at the first six days of October, showing up a relatively seasonally usual rally in risk assets. So we have had credit spreads tightening. We have had equities staging a rally. Uh, across the board. And I want to just take a second to reflect upon these moves. So like in July, also October, these months tend to be um, relatively uh, seasonally strong for risk assets. There is a reason that I want to shed some light on because I've been at the uh, forefront of this kind of flows, uh, given my experience in, in, um, in, uh, in the industry. So what happens is generally that around um, the end of the quarter, so especially in June, but also in September, institutions, uh, CFOs, CROs actually want to show to outside investors a certain balance sheet picture and a certain P&L picture as well. So there are the so-called degrossing flows where institutions have used balance sheet leverage to actually create uh, some additional profit and loss trades, for instance, using repo or using any other sort of, of balance sheet leverage trades, will tend to shrink those trades and therefore actually cut risk ahead of the end of the quarter. This is also something I have experienced in the past with Japanese investors, which uh, at the end of their fiscal quarters, which are not always aligned with European or American quarters, but at the end of their fiscal quarters, they'll do the same. Instead of having, of having leverage trades where they hedge the FX risks uh, in the market and go and buy foreign bonds, for instance, that actually reduce this kind of um, excessive additional risk-adding trades. They'll shrink the balance sheet through the end of the quarter to show to investors and regulators that their positions are, let's say, better looking. It's a little bit of a window dressing exercise. And that's the same, I think, or, or it's anyway um, contributing to the rally we have seen in July and in October, because as, as per the end of June, at the end, per the end of September, investors would tend to uh, shrink the balance sheet and degross some risk. Coming the new quarter, obviously, these constraints, these institutional constraints, these investor-driven constraints would actually fade away. And normally there is a mechanical uh, re-leveraging flow that happens, both from institutions that they, uh, you know, these real money institutions especially, they tend to be relatively price inelastic sometimes, but they would spur a trend driven by their large flows and they would therefore bring with them the so-called CTA. Uh, so basically the trend following community would start to see a trend emerging and would get on the bandwagon further enhancing basically this trend. And we have seen this happening in my opinion or contributing to the rally we have seen um, in October, which doesn't mean it can't continue. Also from a macro perspective, if you look at where real rates were, both at the front end and at the back end of the real yield curve, we went um, you know, for forward real yields on the back end of the curve all the way uh, up to 150 basis points in positive territory. It's a very restrictive stance, which Powell will appreciate, but that also leaves some room for some repricing on the way down in real yields without immediately triggering 
an hawkish response from the Federal Reserve. Because once real yields drop all the way down to 100 basis point, the stand is still pretty tight. But nevertheless, a drop of 50 basis points, for instance, in real yields would generally be quite the tailwind for credit spreads and equities. So uh, again, we are facing, in my opinion, one of the many and typical bear market um, uh, rallies effectively, which is also enhanced by the seasonal effect of October and July that I just described. It doesn't mean it can't continue, but the big picture from a macro perspective, I don't think it has really changed. Uh, one clear example could be the sterling, which also has been subject to these re-leveraging flows after the big scare that the domestic pension fund industry could be subject to huge gigantic margin calls that led the Bank of England to intervene, backstop the bond and the swap market to make sure that effectively these margin calls weren't triggered in large size and this vicious effect of more and more margin calls being triggered, forcing pension funds to fire sell their, their, uh, their assets to meet these margin calls would effectively put the entire system in trouble. The Bank of England has been relatively successful with this intervention. But once again, as per every intervention, as discussed with Andreas on the program many times, you got to be careful because as long as the underlying structural problems are unsolved, and for the UK, those are many, from the current account deficit to the fiscal balance um, with the new fiscal largesse programs being announced, you know, now watered down a bit, but still, they're still on the table. And with the financial account imbalance, so effectively the negative net international investment position that the UK has, all compared with the very low amount of FX reserves, obviously any inflation problem, there are so many pressures that you can try and temporarily tap all the release valves from the sterling to the bond market. But as long as you don't solve the underlying problem, I don't think it's going to be easy for uh, currencies like the sterling, but in general for all the macroeconomic imbalances uh, to sort themselves out very, very quickly. Talking about the UK, before we jump into the interview, and especially talking about London, I'll be there on October 17 and 18 at the Digital Asset Summit Conference uh, organized by Blockworks. I'll be one of the speakers. The conference is in London, October 17, 18. It's hosted at the Royal Lancaster Hotel. It's an event for macro hedge funds, family offices, banks, investors all over the world that are interested in both macro and the digital asset uh, space. And if you're listening to the macro trading floor, you can get a 20% off from the tickets using the code macro. There will be a link uh, behind the show here where you can see um, effectively where to go and purchase tickets with this 20% discount if you're interested, guys. Now back to uh, macro analysis before we jump into the interview. The other interesting thing I want to highlight is the drop in job openings in the US. So for the first time in a while, we've seen quite a large disappointment in US job openings. That has led to some speculation that the Fed pivot is again around the corner. And I'm, I don't know how many times investors have mistakenly called uh, for a Fed pivot this year. It's been quite an expensive mistake. So on the job openings front, what I want to convey is that Powell's preferred indicator of labor market tightness, which is the ratio between job openings and unemployed people in the US, because of the drop in the numerator, so job openings dropping, has actually eased a bit. But please look at the absolute number. We're still looking at 1.67 job openings per each unemployed person. And sorry, guys, I don't like this indicator, but Powell does, and therefore we need to pay attention. 1.67 is much, much, much higher in the uh, history would tell us that any uh, level in this ratio that would be consistent with wage growth 
that is more in line with 2% inflation rather than 8% inflation we're seeing right now. So despite some initial progress, there is a way, way, way further to go before the Federal Reserve can feel relatively confident that the labor market is weakening enough. And the other thing I want to come up across with is weakness in the labor market isn't bullish for stocks, especially in the very first legs. So right now we're seeing a Federal Reserve, which will basically set policy looking in the rearview mirror and will effectively end up tightening much more than necessary by design of their incentive scheme. So when the labor market weakens at the beginning, it's signaling that the economy is likely to weaken further, but it's not yet giving the Federal Reserve green light to ease policy. It's telling us that earnings will slow down materially, but it's telling us that it's still too early in the very early innings for the Federal Reserve to pivot dovish. That setup has nothing bullish for risk assets, in my opinion. So again, the Fed pivot will happen as everything in cycles. They will, you know, events always happen at some point in time. But getting the sequencing, the timing right and understanding inside the schemes of policymakers is very important here. Now, enough with the introduction. It's time to introduce the guest of the week, which I'm very, very proud to have on the macro trading floor. Hey, everybody, we are back with the guest of the week on the macro trading floor. Um, I'm very happy to have today John Porter on the show. John is a legendary investor, if you ask me, with a wealth of experience. He has run money for bank treasuries, hedge funds. He has worked at the World Bank. He has run money for uh, a, a bunch of institutions across the world. He brings a wealth of experience with him. So it's going to be a pleasure to listen to John today. How are you doing, John? Good. Thank you very much. Uh, this is my first podcast, so uh, I hope uh, a little indulgent. Well, <laughs> I will. Um, let's kick start, as always, on the macro trading floor with uh, an initial question. And I know that your framework tends to look at today's environment and uh, draw parallels with the past, and particularly with the late 60s and the transition to the 70s. Do you want to elaborate about your view? No, absolutely. I'd actually like to start with a uh, philosophical comment by a great Hispanic American philosopher called George Santayana, who basically said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And then a bit of poetry by the great Mark Twain, who is reputed to have said, history does not repeat, but it and for the listeners who do not know me, I'd like to say that rather than being an investor, a banker, or a trader, I actually view myself as a behavioral psychologist, which is actually my field of study. And I find that in looking at the markets, I'm engaged in a real-time experiment in social psychology, which actually has served me well over the years. So going back to the parallels, at least I could say I was alive in the 60s, although clearly I was not investing. But I do find there are some very significant parallels in terms of the transition from the 60s into the 70s and from the 2010s to what we're seeing now. Let's first look at the social side. I found already two parallels. One was the advent of women's liberation, which can be compared with the Me Too movement now. 
We also had the very strong civil rights movement led by both Dr. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X that basically finds its parallel in terms of the Black Lives Matter. We also had a polarized society. In general, the polarization centered around the Vietnam War, where the young were very much against the establishment. As a matter of fact, in those days, if you go to business school, you were viewed as a complete act. And of course, no need to mention the polarization in today's society, perhaps well known in terms of the wearing of the mask, particularly in the US, uh, how that could be polarized, I really don't know, but I think it also shows how extreme things are. In addition, although most people think that climate change is something new, actually there was a very strong environmental movement uh, in the late 60s. And in the 1970s, particularly 1970, three very important events occurred. And interestingly enough, it was done by a Republican president, Richard Nixon at the time, which was virtually unthinkable. Number one, Earth Day was declared. Number two, they passed the Clean Air Act because Los Angeles, one couldn't see the sun in those days. There was so much smog. And lastly, Richard Nixon, interestingly enough, founded the Environmental Protection Agency. And this was followed in 1972 by the Clean Water Act. So there was a very strong environmental movement, just like there is today with climate change. And of course, we talked about the political side. We had Vietnam, which was a very important event throughout the 60s. And we also had COVID uh, in the early 2020s. And although uh, Emmanuel Macron had actually compared COVID to a war, I do like the quote, which I forgot who said it. I wish I did, but I don't want to plagiarize. Basically, that individual said, you can only compare COVID to a war if you've never, owned, if you've never known war. So clearly, I'm sure the Ukrainians would have something to say about that. As we move now into the economic parallels, one thing is very striking. We had artificially low interest rates in the 1960s, and we had QE in the period of 2010 through 2020. So these deficits were actually funded by monetary creation. We had significant deficits in the 60s to fund the Vietnam War. Clearly, Lyndon Johnson could not raise taxes because that would have not gotten him elected, but at the same time, he couldn't cut expenditures because his entire legacy was known as the Great Society, which entailed a tremendous amount of social spending. And now we know that QE has been with us since Ben Bernanke in 2009. But interestingly enough, all of this has tended to be deficit financing by monetary creation. Now, modern monetary theory or money grows on trees has told us deficits don't matter. But I think we are now experiencing the fact that they indeed do. We also have the supply shock in 1973 by OPEC, repeated in 78, which raised oil prices uh, significantly. And here we obviously had Russian invasion of the Ukraine, which also raised oil prices significantly. And OPEC has just done that again by cutting uh, their production, excuse me, by cutting their production by 2 million barrels. 
So what were the consequences? Well, in the 60s and the transition to the 70s, first we had the peg to gold, which was 35 an ounce in 1970, was broken in August. And then we saw gold begin its long upward march to $880 in 1980. We had significant current account deficits and people said they didn't matter, just like budget deficits don't matter. And the great economist Herbert Stein said, current account deficits do not matter until they do. And eventually the outflow of US dollars and foreign exchange eventually led to Nixon having taking us off the peg to gold. We also had significant inflation, so significant that a Republican president in presumably the most capitalistic country in the world had to impose wage and price controls twice and also had unemployment going up significantly to the invention of what was known at that time as the misery index, which was the addition of the unemployment rate and the inflation rate. We also had, from a financial point of view in the 60s, something called the Nifty 50, very, very attractive large cap stocks, perhaps personified by Disney at the time, uh, that eventually fell significantly out of favor into the 70s. And one might want to compare that, the so-called FANGs, you know, the, the large cap tech stocks, uh, plus Tesla, et cetera, that obviously led the long march up, but might start to fall out of favor at some point. Then we had the transition uh, into the 80s. The late 70s, Jimmy Carter appointed Paul Volcker uh, as the head of the Federal Reserve. And actually, he was referred to by Jerome Powell as his hero. Now, the one thing I would say about Paul Volcker, the society was so tired of unemployment and inflation that they were willing to take a tremendous amount of pain to get it down. And that's what Volcker delivered. Now, the question is, and we'll get back to this at some point, is the society ready for the pain that's necessary to get inflation down? We shall see. At the same time, I think we had perhaps the greatest social event, certainly in my lifetime, and that was the fall of the Berlin Wall, which led to the fall of the Soviet Union, which led to the whole world going capitalist overnight. When I was at the World Bank, I would say three quarters of the world uh, was socialist and believed very strongly that the state knew best and certainly better than the private sector. Well, that changed overnight. And then in the early 90s, we had the Uruguay round of trade negotiations, which led to the freest trading regime the world has known thus far. And that, my friends, was globalization, which enabled the significant budget deficits under Reagan to be closed by Bill Clinton, once again, wonders never cease, a Democrat. And that was due to the fact that he was able to cut, to cut significantly military expenditures. We also had, thanks to the invention of the internet, a tremendous increase in productivity. And finally, we had China joining the WTO, which led to a 20-year deflation or disinflation in the Western world, thanks to all those factors. Then as we go into 2020, how does it compare? Well, as you know, we had supply shocks because of constraints owing to COVID. 
COVID and the war. So we saw a very significant increase in raw materials and the price of goods. But according to the Fed, once all this washed out, things would be back to normal. So therefore, inflation was transitory. Well, where did they get it wrong? Because they admit now it was less transitory than they thought. Well, I think what they forgot was the monetary overhang and the significant government spending and fiscal transfers that were all financed by monetary creation. Once again, people felt that deficits didn't matter, but of course that led to excess demand at the same time you were having supply constraints. So that turbocharged prices. And at the same time, we actually had a reduction in the supply of labor because people didn't return to the labor force as quickly as they thought possible. The demand for labor clearly was going up because we had all this pent up demand as people left their homes and looked to spend the money. And therefore we had a very significant increase in wages. The question is, and I'll conclude this part on this Alf and Andreas, if you're listening, do we need a recession to get inflation down? Well, once again, let's look to the past. Since World War II, we've had two soft landings, one in 1966 and one in 1995-97. But one thing which is very interesting, whenever inflation was above 5% or the unemployment rate was below 5%, we've never had a soft landing. And of course, today we know the inflation rate is 8.3%. And the unemployment rate is 3.8%. So the odds are against the soft landing. We did have a recession, according to many people, in Q1, Q2, but that was more of a technical recession, i.e. two negative quarters of GDP growth. But I do not believe that the ultimate arbiter of the recession, the NBER, National Bureau for Economic Research, will deem that a recession. Why? Because during that period, since the beginning of 2022, we have averaged 470,000 jobs created. And normally in a recession, the job creation is negative, not only not positive, but certainly not of that order of magnitude. Another thing argues perhaps in favor of a soft landing, and that is the imbalances in the economy are much less than they usually are before a recession. Why is that? Because many people learned from the great financial crisis of 07, 08. And as a result, the corporate balance sheets are in much better health, net interest payments are low, the actual liquid assets are very high, 9% of GDP, and they're sitting on a pile of 500 billion in cash. The same with households. The debt service ratio at nine and a half is close to a historic low, and they themselves have $1.4 trillion in excess savings. So the savings mitigated the increase in gasoline, which enabled the consumers to continue. And now with gas prices 50% down, that actually serves in a way as a tax cut, which should serve to fuel consumption, no pun intended, Uh, in Q3 and Q4. In addition, the one problem area will be housing because mortgage rates have doubled. House prices are now starting to decline. And this should actually have an impact on household furnishings, building materials, 
and appliances, which obviously comprise retail sales, and that should actually mitigate a bit the increase in retail sales. But despite the fact that both manufacturing and uh, housing account for 10% of uh, GDP each, so that's 20%, even if they're in recession, we still can avoid recession. So the jury is still out. Inflation appears to have peaked, but at the same time, it hasn't declined materially. So we shall see going forward. So John, this parallel you drew with the late 60s, actually, I find it extremely interesting and compelling to a certain extent. My analysis would tend to actually compare these periods to some in the past and look at the late 60s as one of the potential parallels to be drawn. What happened in the 70s, though, to inflation was pretty interesting because one of the open questions out there is whether the Federal Reserve will ultimately be able to slow inflation down by hitting demand hard enough. Or are there structural reasons why inflation should remain higher over the next five to 10 years? So in which camp uh, do you sit? Do you think inflation is going to revert back to the two, two and a half percent area? Or do you think it's going to actually range much higher on average over the next decade and why? Well, it's a very good question. And what I will do, I will try to give you a framework in which we can all make our own decisions, because a lot is very dependent on what will happen into the future. So is this a cyclical episode of inflation that we'll look back at and go back to the so-called old normal? Or is this more a secular or structural increase? So first of all, inflation to me is a function of four economic variables, certainly in the US. One is the dollar, the price of commodities, margins, and unit labor costs. Well. The good news is the dollar is very strong. So, of course, that puts downward pressure on imports, and that should serve to mitigate inflation. At the same time, interest rates have gone up. So demand is actually reduced, particularly in interest-sensitive sectors, such as autos, as well as housing. The supply constraints are also being reduced as we speak. We see unfilled orders uh, actually going down, we see supplier delivery times uh, quickening, and we actually see that the inventory sales ratio is now back to the COVID, pre-COVID levels. So that's a good thing. So those basic supply constraints are easing quite significantly, and therefore the price of commodities is going down because of that. So once again, another plus against, uh, or against structural inflation. We also have margins, and I think it's important to note that margins, the increase in margins were significant during COVID and during supply constraints, but they were not cost push margins. They were basically wholesalers increasing their margins, recognizing that they could get away with it. They were disproportionately high, and margins always tend to to revert, uh, mean revert over time. So an example of that are new used cars. People couldn't get new cars, so used cars went through the roof, up 40%, 50% in terms of prices. And new and used cars are 11% of CPI. So clearly, these prices will be coming down. Indeed, they're starting to. Uh, in a different, if margins actually remain the same, they just don't increase at this very high level and high probability they're going to come down, and oil doesn't move We'll say it stays at 90 for all of next year. Just because of 
base effects, core CPI will go down significantly, and that will be a positive. But let's look at unit labor costs. To me, this is the key, Alf, to decide whether it's secular or cyclical. Now, wages are up at 5.5%, which are definitely too high at this point to get to 2% inflation. However, on the positive side, we have firms citing labor costs as their main problem. That's going down, so the labor market is starting to loosen. The participation rate, which has been very slow in rising, still appears to be rising, and certainly it's statistically significantly rising. The question is how quickly. And inflation expectations, miraculously, are starting to decline. So all that actually argues in favor of a cyclical burst, but not a secular burst of inflation. At the same time, one other important sign in terms of unit labor costs is productivity. The good news is, although productivity was very, very low after the great financial crisis from 2009 to perhaps 2016, it actually started to increase. It's actually gone from under 1% to just under 2% before COVID hit. So if that trend continues, that should also mitigate uh, the increase in inflation. And once again, going back to that decade of the 1990s, we actually had productivity increasing from 1.5% to close to 3%, and inflation went down despite the fact that wages increased at 4% during that entire decade. And that was actually great for financial markets. Why? Simply because during that decade, we had five consecutive years of double-digit returns in the stock market, something that had not been seen 30 years before, nor had been seen 30 years later. And one last point is there is massive need for capital investment. Why? Well, simply because after the great financial crisis, the corporates were shell-shocked. So they saved on investment, and as a result, we had a very significant underinvestment, and therefore the capital stock aged and deteriorated and it actually shrunk. Another thing was, because of the housing boom, the housing boom actually diverted scarce resources from more productive investments into construction. And then we had all those empty houses or apartments uh, once the crisis hit. So as a result, now firms are cash rich, they need to invest just to even replenish the capital stock. The labor market is very tight, so they're incentivized to substitute labor for capital, uh, uh, capital for labor, excuse me. And as a result, if they do that, that should actually underpin the increase in productivity. And as a result, we should get a decline in unit labor costs. Plus, if we have the participation rate continuing on the upswing, that should also reduce uh, wages because we have an increase in the supply for labor and things should be good. However, there are other factors which are less immediate that we definitely have to look at to see if inflation might be structural. One is social. Over the last 25 years, the return to labor has gone nowhere but down at the expense of the return to capital. Yeah. And this has presented problems socially. By the way, I think that's the reason why Donald Trump got elected, because 
the base of the Democrats used to be the working class, the auto workers, the Rust Belt and things, and they all voted for him. Why? Because they've been disenfranchised for the last 20, 25 years. Uh, and now we have progressive policies of income distribution before nobody would take people like Bernie Sanders or the famous Congresswoman uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez seriously. But now people listen to them because everybody wants income redistribution policies in a progressive manner towards the poor. Unfortunately, that's not always the most efficient way to proceed, but that's politics. From a political point of view, there is definitely worldwide an increase of the state relative to the private sector. And that could result in significant crowding out of the private sector and a reduction in productivity. For example, Germany has committed 2% of GDP to rearmament. Well, yes, there can be spillovers to the consumer sector by military spending, but in essence, at the beginning, it's not. You basically build bombs and put them in bunkers somewhere. Once again, from an economic point of view, there are definitely concerns you know, about getting unemployment up to get inflation down. But the question is, does the society have the resilience for that, for the pain and suffering that they had with the misery index? I'm not so sure why. It's one thing for Jerome Powell to tell us there may be some pain. That's like the fear in saying, oh, my God, I have a dentist appointment today. But that fear is very, very different than once the dentist puts the drill to the tooth and you become, you scream out in agony. So I don't know if society has that kind of resilience at this point. They haven't suffered for quite some time. And at the same point, even if the Fed does do that, I think the politicians, which as opposed to true public service in general, I think now all they care about is getting power, and they're very short-term in nature. So they're going to use fiscal policy to offset a lot of the pain maybe caused by significant increases in interest rates. Germany already is spending 7% to offset the entire energy impact, 7% of GDP, which is enormous. All states are highly indebted to begin with. And as a result, the politicians can't allow suffering because if not, they're not going to get elected. As a very quick aside, there was a model, a political model called the FAIR model, developed by Roy Fair, a political science at Yale University, who basically found that if you put incumbency and the direction of the unemployment rate, all other variables are statistically insignificant in predicting who will become the next president. So a very good example where it worked you know, against all odds was 1990. George H.W. Bush had a 90% popularity rating. Why? Gulf War One, four days done. But because Alan Greenspan was very worried about the budget deficits that were built up during the Reagan years of the 80s, he convinced President Bush to raise taxes despite the campaign pledge, which you may or may not have remembered, read my lips, no new taxes, but said, as a counterpoint, I will drop interest rates to offset. Well, he didn't drop them enough. We went into recession. And guess what? Bill Clinton got elected. So this will be very interesting because if the Fed goes into overkill and unemployment goes up, to me, I can hear Donald Trump saying, you were wrong not to reelect me. If I was elected, there'd be no war in the Ukraine. I got you the Pfizer vaccine 
and the stock market and the economy was doing great when I was there. And I think he could get reelected again. So the jury is out. And then very lastly, there are some structural changes that have occurred on this. And that is people are less globalization now, anti-globalization. As opposed to the just-in-time inventory, it's now going to be the just-in-case inventory. People have to hold more inventory now. Uh, you never know when the next uh, COVID is going to appear. Because globalization will be less, efficiency gains will be less too. A lot of people will move towards at least autarky, where they want to produce everything by themselves. Look at the situation now in China and Taiwan. There's this view that we're going to produce all the chips in the U.S. To do that, it's going to take 10 years, and it's not going to be as efficient as international trade. And even the transition to green energy will be very, very costly. So all this is going to lead to very, very high budget deficits that, to me, can no longer be funded through monetary creation. Um, as I said before, when I was uh, an economist working on highly indebted countries, the second most highly indebted country in 1985 was, was Morocco, 115% debt to GDP. By the way, that's France today, and they're not alone. So as a result, I think that there are factors mitigating towards secular or structural inflation. We have to follow how these things play out in those areas I've just told you. So, John, Let me try and uh, summarize and then ask one last question, which is always the most interesting for the audience at the end of the day, which is how do we <laughs> apply this framework into markets today? But the way I, I hear you is effectively you saying, Alf, look, I think the balance sheets of the private sector are relatively okay. And we are not in a recession because the labor market is holding off pretty decently. And over the long term, anyway, fiscal authorities will make sure to step in if there is a big problem. So uh, together with the trend in productivity, which was uprising, you seem to be relatively um, constructive, let's say on long-term abilities of the economy to generate growth, or at least less negative than mainstream economists are out there. But on top of that, you're telling me, Alf, the Federal Reserve is looking at a very high CPI, but there are cyclical factors that could actually push CPI in the right direction over the next 12 months, which would allow the Federal Reserve perhaps to step a little bit their foot off the gas pedal at some point. This is, this is the way I, I tend to summarize your, your view. Pardon me if it's not accurate because you talked about much more than only this, but it, it leads me to ask you one final question, which is looking at what's priced in markets today, John, across the board in interest rates, in equities, in credits. What do you think is the most mispriced set of assets out there? Where would you think there is the best risk reward opportunity lying? Well, I think to say that, uh, Alf, I have to go through one last kind of discourse, and that is on the neutral interest rate. And I think yeah. it's very important because, as we know, if you can't price three-month money, you can't price any financial asset. Sure. So, as we all know, there's this concept of R-star that the Fed tends to reserve, refer to many times. And R-star is effectively the risk-free rate on the entire economy. And it should be more or less equal to the rate of productivity growth and the rate of population growth. And before, because of the great financial crisis, they had estimated it at 50 basis points, which to me still was too low. But nonetheless, you know, the Fed is the Fed. So who am I to argue? In the end, when you get their inflation target, 
where inflation expectations should be. If you believe that the Fed will be successful, they say their target is 2%. Say, okay, great. So normally the neutral nominal Fed funds rate should have been 2.5%. Correct. Okay. However, I would like to argue now that because of productivity increase, if I'm right, we can still have a much higher Fed funds rate, but it's not because of inflation. And I'll say, let's say inflation stays at two and two and a half percent. But let's say we get productivity like we did in the 90s, closer to two and a half and three percent. In that case, you can definitely get a Fed funds rate between five and five and a half percent. So you can have an instance whereby real rates actually increase despite inflation declining. And because of that, I think that even today, although we might not get to five, five and a half percent immediately, I think we will get there over the next several years. And I think that will be very important for the investment uh, recommendation that I would like to make. So perhaps I'll go right into that now because sure. it's based on that. that. First of all, inverted curves are definitely the exception, not the rule. Why? Because in general, the future is more uncertain the further out you go. So you have to put in a kind of term premium to say, you know, it's hard for me to know what's going to happen in a week, no less 10 years. So anything can happen. And it seems like given the past, inflation historically has been a greater worry than deflation. We haven't been in deflation since the 30s. And by the way, even in the 30s, the 10-year note never went below 2%. So it shows how artificial the rates had been when we got to 50 basis points. And all of this was because of, to me, too much QE. So the negative term premium where people were worried about deflation, which to me is a result of the so-called behavioral economic phenomenon anchoring to the past. People think the future will be the same as the past because they don't think in discontinuous functions. To me, the term premium is gonna come back uh, with a vengeance and that will be manifest in the longer end of the curve. So therefore we should have a more positively sloped curve. Um, at the same time, we've gone from QE to QT, quantitative tightening. So the huge buyers of sovereign bonds, which were the central banks, are now turning sellers. And high budget deficits, which seem to continue, will also result in continued debt issuance. So to me, it's the perfect storm for a steepening of the curve. In addition, not only don't you have the central banks not buying the debt for economic reasons. You also have countries that were huge buyers of U.S. debt, Russia and China, who will not buy for political reasons. So all that debt has got to be absorbed by the domestic public, in which case they're going to ask for greater assurances against potential inflation, even if it's not going to happen because we don't know. There's also greater uncertainty. So the greater the uncertainty, the greater the term premium also. Why? You look at the Fed's dot plot, they're at 100 basis points spread in 2003 in terms of those who think rates will be high versus low at the extreme. And you're at 200 basis points in 2024. 
So their uncertainty has increased. So why should my certainty uh, increase if their uncertainty, you know, has, has, has increased? And we saw what happened in the guilt market. Where was the problem? It wasn't in the front end. It was in the long end, where all of a sudden, I think during my lifetime, you've never had a yield move per unit of time like you did in that guilt market. And the central bank had to intervene, bizarrely enough. On the one hand, they're telling us they're tightening and they're going to do quantitative tightening. On the other hand, they come in with quantitative easing. So a lot of uncertainty. And I want that reflected uh, in the overall uh, yield curve. And lastly, to conclude, we know that on the one hand, according to the great monetarist, Nobel Prize winner, Milton Friedman, monetary policy works with long and variable lags. So the Fed actually is tightening now, looking to see inflation come down. But if Friedman is right, the first tightening, which was in March, won't even make itself you know, felt until you know, five months from now and maybe even 11 months from now. The one reason why I like the so-called curve steepener, and let's just say twos, tens, you go along the twos, you sell the tens or the thirties, or maybe twos, tens, or fives, thirties, however you want to look, you look at the forwards and things like that. It's a very positive carry trade with positive roll down, so you have time on your side, as well as history. So on that, I will conclude. John, I would like to uh, say uh, something but, uh, about the trade itself first, and then something about this interview. So when it comes to the trade itself, this year has been a graveyard of steepeners. But the reason for that has been the fact that the Federal Reserve has surprised, materially surprised investors in how hawkish and how strongly committed Powell has been to sending a message. I think the, um, you know, the top, the, the top of the climax was reached the Jackson Hole speech. That was impressive. If you ask me as a speech, he basically is convincing investors that he's going to be serious about inflation. That wasn't reflected in the front end of the curve. Therefore, yields had to rise materially. The terminal rate was reprised all the way up to four and a half percent. And therefore, the curve flattened as the economy was slowing down a bit for sure at the same time. But right now, I think your story, John, becomes more compelling. It becomes more compelling because There, is, there will be a point, basically, as you say, where the tightening we have gone through, very material one over the, over the first 10 months of the year, will feed into economic growth. And as it does, and as inflation hopefully slows down a bit, the Federal Reserve will effectively be looking much less aggressive in the front end. And the back end can also, as a result of this term premium and these potential risks you are describing, can also back up a bit. So curve steepeners here have, have positive carry and I think also relatively positive expected value. As a trade, but most importantly, John, if long end yields would rise, it would have a bunch of implications for other asset classes as well, including equities, especially long duration equities like NASDAQ, which have been the darling of markets so far. So that's my, uh, my feedback on the trade. But most importantly, I'd like to thank you, John, for the fact that this interview has been a walkthrough past parallels with the 60s from a social perspective, economic perspective, a great breakdown of the cross-currents we are seeing in macro. And on behalf of the community here on the macro trading floor, I'd really like to thank you very much for, uh, for doing this. Thank you, Alf. One final uh, point to, to your point. I think what's very interesting, 
I did not because I thought rates would be going higher than, well higher than 3%. So I never really said to buy the front end or buy it against anything in those days. Obviously now, I think we're getting closer to where I think the true terminal rate is. So this is why I believe it's a sweet spot. One other thing also is that what could derail anything? A financial crisis. I don't think there will be one, but we saw the thing with a certain Swiss bank. Anything's possible. As Warren Buffett said, you never know swimming naked until the tide goes out. So if for some reason there is a stock market crash, and by no means am I calling for one, but one never knows. We are in October after all. Uh, this is your long, that type of, you know, financial implosion in the stock market crash, which I think is, um, you know, very good. And the very last thing I say, you can't really trade it. But to me, the most undervalued asset in the world, the one that's trading with the greatest discount is age and experience. Because obviously in today's world, people think it's a young man's game. But I feel that nonetheless, after having lived through a lot of this, I'm very happy to be able to share this with a lot of people who haven't, because having lived through it is very different than looking at a chart. So I thank you so much for your time and and the opportunity to share my thoughts with you, Alf. I would like to back up your trade of being long age and experienced. The the way I I knew you was uh, reading the chapter that was in the book, I think, of Steve Grobney, where I interviewed um, uh, very uh, experienced asset managers and wealth managers yourself as well. That's where I learned about you in the very first place. And this interview has been uh, exactly the wealth of knowledge that people are looking for and experience as well from your side. Thanks, John. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Al. Very glad to have had the opportunity to interview John Porter. I learned about John in the Steve Drobny's books, where he interviews the best hedge fund managers and uh, money managers in the world. And it goes basically deep into their framework, into their thinking, into their risk management. In, um, in, his, in one of these chapters of his books, John Porter was interviewed. He was the treasurer of Barclays back then. Barclays is a, a very active treasury. They take quite some active view of the markets and risks, and they trade large, large, large sizes. So uh, together with that experience at Barclays, John has accumulated other experience at Moore Capital, which is a hedge fund and many other institutions. He has a wealth of experience, and I hope it has come across as such. John's view of the world, and we are recording on October 6th, 2022, is one where effectively he thinks that inflation is likely to slow down, and this is a positive in general for the economy and for risk assets. But as inflation slows down, basically this is just a lagged effect of a tightening of monetary policy that we have seen uh, on our screens basically since the beginning of the year. So cyclically speaking, nominal growth effectively effectively will be coming down, according to John. But uh, on, on the medium term, which is the second leg of his trade, basically, on the medium term, John doesn't think that uh, real potential economic growth is as low as many people depict it. He thinks productivity growth can actually surprise on the upside over the next decade. And therefore, together with the ability and willingness from policymakers to backstop major recessions using fiscal deficits like they have done in 2020, 2021, this would make a case for a decent long-term economic growth prospect. And so the combination of the two basically makes for a cyclical nominal growth slowdown combined with a decent probability that over the medium to long-term growth will be surprising on the upside, 
you know, in John's opinion, that makes for a steeper yield curve where the front end of the bond market actually has to reprice a less aggressive Fed, but the back end of the bond market can remain relatively optimistic about the future. So because the curves are so inverted today in the bond market where we have 530s US curve or two stands uh, US curve all the way negative to minus 50 to 70 basis point, he thinks this is a pretty decent entry level for a medium term macro trade, which is a curve steepener. And again, that means buying, for instance, a two year bond and selling a 10 year bond weighted for the duration of the two different legs. So generally a 10 year bond has obviously much more duration than a two year bond. So if you want only the curve slope to uh, affect the PL of your trade, you should make sure that the duration of one leg is weighted against the other, which is what John is putting on as a trade. And to be honest, uh, I'm running an analysis looking at the basically parallels in the past between uh, 2022 or going into 2023, to be honest, against uh, periods in the past where uh, macroeconomic conditions were relatively similar. So what you're looking at, guys, here is periods where non-farm payrolls or in general the labor market was about to weaken, earnings were about to weaken, inflation was way above the Fed mandate, perhaps coming down a little bit over the next three to six months, but still way above the Fed mandate, which also as the fourth point limits the ability of the Federal Reserve to immediately backstop um, the, the downtrend in nominal growth effectively. So you're looking at these four potential uh, constraints as a setup to, uh, to draw parallels with the past. The late 60s, and especially in my opinion, late 2000, beginning of 2001, they represent pretty decent parallels with today. And so if I look at the late 2000, for example, the market had just come uh, from a, an explosive bubble in dot-com and in general in anything that had to do with technology. Uh, the market had quite some imbalances when it comes to risk-taking and an excessive animal spirits that then were corrected throughout the second half of 2020 somehow. And inflation was running at 4%, which is not 8%, but it was running at 4% for several quarters in a row, which still was doubled than the Federal Reserve mandate. And, you know, that basically limited the ability of the Federal Reserve to intervene. In late 2000, nominal growth was actually slowing down. We had the first negative surprise in the labor market and in earnings, but the Federal Reserve could only start cutting rates later in 2001, as again, inflation was running much hotter than their mandate. Now, this resembles quite a lot, in my opinion, the period we're seeing right now and the yield curve. Uh, be in this period, effectively, like in the late 60s, actually steepened quite a lot because in preparation to a, um, a turn from the Fed as nominal growth was slowing down, ultimately the Fed would be called to intervene and ease monetary policy with a bit of a lag. And so the markets which are always forward-looking were basically trying to look through that period and anticipate Fed cuts, which ultimately came in late 2001. Because yield curves are so inverted today and we are progressing further in the slowdown on, on nominal growth in this portion of the cycle, in my opinion, and over the next six months, putting out a curve steepener could be a good idea. One um, last comment from my side, again, as I said in the intro, weakening of the labor market, weakening of earnings, weakening of nominal growth to the point that it, that it basically forces the Federal Reserve to have to ease monetary policy in the very early stages is not bullish for risk assets. So that is one of the things where people are always used over the last 10 years to see the Federal Reserve easing equals 
positive returns in the S&P 500, but the macroeconomic conditions that were prevailing over the last decade are very different from the ones we have today. This was my last comment uh, of the day. I've been, I've felt a bit lonely here talking without my buddy Andreas backing me up or criticizing me, whatever his stance was, but we'll be back next Sunday on the macro trading floor. Thanks as always for listening guys. And uh, we'll speak soon.